Thank you, Maddie. All right, you can be seated. And our younger kiddos can be dismissed. Oh, yeah. Just kidding, guys. Sorry. The audible at the beginning threw me off. All right? By the way, I had to stand at the back door, Wes and Liz, because people walked in who were guests this morning, and they heard you singing in a monster voice, and they turned around and walked out the back door. So I had to go catch them as they were leaving and say, hey, it's, it's for the kids. It's for the kids. Come on in. Um, growing up in Texas, it was common to have country music on in the car whenever you were going anywhere, driving anywhere, headed to school, doing errands, running anything, you know, in the, like around the house, country music. Anybody country music fans? All right. Country music in the house, right? Exciting, exciting. So um, back then, like stereos were furniture, Okay televisions were furniture. Like if you, had a, if you had a stereo in your house, it wasn't just, you know, this little jam box. I, even I say jam box, some of you are like, what is a jam box, right? An iPod. Some of you are like, what's an iPod, right? Yeah, see, like things have changed. Like stereos were furniture. And so you, you like showed off your stereo and then eventually stereos would go out and then I would drive like this hoopty of a vehicle and I would take the speakers from that stereo and put them in the trunk of my car. Anybody else put the house? Okay, all right. Now I know who we're working with. And uh, growing up, you know, country music, there were, there were uh, I, I'm trying to figure out how to match an illustration. Last week, Josh began by saying, he loves the smell of cigarette smoke. Um, so I'm, I feel like I'm pressured here today to match his level of illustration here. So um, that's forever going to mark us as a church, right? Uh, so I grew up, my dad loved the, the band Alabama. Like this was uh, the iconic Alabama. Uh, you know, George Strait, Kenny Rogers. These are the people that were, were playing on the radio. My dad uh, had this old, it was a Dodge car. I, I thought it was a Dodge Charger. I thought he was driving the Dukes of Hazard car when I was young. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't that cool. Uh, but he had an eight track player. And in, in some of you are like, what's an eight track? Go and look it up. Uh, but he had an eight track player in this Dodge vehicle and he had Willie Nelson, okay? So Willie Nelson became like iconic in our family. To the point that there was a time when I was probably eight or nine years old uh, that it came on the news that Willie Nelson was coming to town. Now, this was a big deal. I, I lived, it was a smaller town in, in North Texas. Willie Nelson's coming to town and everyone's excited about this, okay? I'm eight or nine years old. I remember it's a big event. We're going to see Willie Nelson and it wasn't just me, like my mom, my dad. It was like grandparents, aunts, uncles, like we're all going to see Willie Nelson. Willie Nelson is coming to town. This is exciting. And I remember it, it wasn't necessarily the, what, what I remember is not necessarily the Willie Nelson concert. It was standing out back, in between the exit and, and like the tour bus that Willie Nelson was going to get in. And we were standing there waiting just to see him kind of walk from the exit to the tour bus. And he's kissing people, okay? And I remember my grandma was kissed by Willie Nelson. And this was like the biggest deal ever, okay? 
Willie Nelson kissed my grandma. And I remember it was just like buzz in the air. You're trying to catch a view. You're, you're, this crowd is packing in. We're trying to see. I even wore my Willie Nelson shirt here today. See it? See his ponytails? It's pretty awesome. You didn't know there was Willie Nelson shirts? You should get one. They're pretty cool. But we were trying to catch a glimpse. We were trying to catch a glimpse of Willie Nelson. And uh, I, I think about that moment. Everyone pressing in, everyone shouting his name, trying to interact with him somehow, some way. Grandma gets a kiss from Willie Nelson. And I share that story because it's the closest illustration I have to what's happening in John chapter 12. Like, I don't know how you read John chapter 12, but this is a major event. Jesus is coming into town. Now, this is the, the Jesus that's from Nazareth. This is not the, the, the just Jesus that, that people kind of grew up knowing. This is the Jesus who raised Lazarus from the grave. And they're, they're saying that they heard that. They, they heard these signs that he performed, these miracles that he performed. And there's quite a crowd. And you know, if you read on earlier in the, in the Gospel of John, that we, we heard that there were times where Jesus said, it's not my time, and I'm not going to come in a very public way. But here, Jesus is coming in a very public way. Jesus is going to make himself known. He's going to do something in this, this, uh, these few verses that kind of illustrate his identity and his true nature. And so Jesus is coming into town and people are gathering. It says in John chapter 12, verse nine, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, right? They're like, we want to see this guy. We want to see who Lazarus is. Like the fact that this guy was dead and he's risen. That's amazing. We want to go see him. And what's interesting in verse 10, as just a side note, it says, the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but Lazarus just rose from the grave. And I'm sure Lazarus is thinking, man, they're trying to kill me. Like, I mean... At the end of the day, I, I guess you can try, but Jesus keeps bringing me back, all right? So uh, here, the, the, the attempt to kill Lazarus may not, may not go so well. But they're, they're gathering around. It says, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And then in verse 12, it says, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. He's headed there. And they were going out to meet him. Now, the interesting thing, this is known as the triumphal entry. And we have to ask ourselves the question, what can we learn from this passage? What does this passage reveal about us? Uh, what does this passage reveal about who we are? What does this passage teach us or tell us about Jesus and what he came to do? How do we respond to who Jesus is? And so that's kind of where I want us to go this morning. And I'll start off by saying, we're all looking for a king. We're all looking for a king. What Jesus is going to do here is, is, is Jesus is going to come and he's going to display that he is the king, but he's not just the king over Israel, he's the king over the world. Now, what they're looking for in a king, and we're, we're going to kind of dive into that this morning, um, but... It's not the type of kingdom and, and, and developing the type of kingdom that they believe uh, that Jesus is, is coming to do. So I want you to imagine there's, there's quite a feast 
happening here, the Passover feast. And there's people that are traveling from all over. These are the pilgrims that are headed from Galilee, that are headed from all over Israel. And they're coming to Jerusalem because the Passover festival is happening. And they're traveling there to be a part of this. And I don't know the picture that you have in your mind when you think of pilgrims traveling from all over, the, uh, all over to, to come and be a part of this festival. But what was interesting is I shared with you guys, we were in Israel a few weeks ago and we, Amber and I were sitting on the Mount of Olives and it was meant to be kind of this solemn worship event, prayerful, and we're sitting there, we're thinking, we're reflecting on the night Jesus would go to the Mount of Olives and that he would pray and ask, Father, if there's any way, take this cup from me. And we're sitting there on the Mount of Olives and I just remember looking over the city of Jerusalem from this hillside we're only about one to two miles outside of town looking over Jerusalem and it is noisy as all get out. Like horns, I, people use their horns as a way of saying I love you. Like, I mean, it's just horns honking all the time, construction happening, people walking in and out. I mean, it is chaotic. And here we are, I'm, we're, we're gathered in the Mount of Olives. We're sitting there on a hillside. Someone's playing a guitar, the Bible's open and I'm like, this is the way I had this in mind is, is wilderness, like Jesus traveling outside, not a part of kind of the city hustle and bustle. But here we are sitting, overlooking the city. It's chaos. I'm like, man, this is distracting. And what's interesting is the person who was kind of facilitating um, that moment said, don't allow yourself to get distracted and pulled away by the noise. Like Jesus on the night that he was going to be betrayed, pressing into the final moments of his life, this wasn't a, a solemn night. This is a night, chaos is happening in the city. Pilgrims from all over Israel are journey, journeying in and they're traveling to, to be there. And the crowds, the activity, the daily life in the midst of all the turmoil that Jesus was gonna be anticipating, all of life is still going on. It doesn't stop. It doesn't pause in this moment. And so Josephus writes uh, in like AD 65 that at Passover, there were 2.7 million people in Jerusalem at that time. Okay, I want you to think about the crowd of people. Jerusalem isn't large. 2.7 million people coming, and this was AD 65. Um, it says that they would come. Many of them, they wouldn't be able to camp within the city walls. So they would camp all over the hillside. They would camp outside the city. You can imagine the crowds, the people, the pilgrims, the people traveling there, that if Jesus were to gain a crowd or activity or hearing, if Jesus were to do something, that it could create quite a commotion and this is what's going on, and this is what's kind of riling up the Jews. This is what is causing them to say, I, I want to kill Lazarus. I want to kill Jesus. I want to... This is what's ultimately going to lead to his crucifixion because Jesus is going in and he's making a scene. You can imagine now just the hustle and bustle, the chaos of the city, and, and they realize that Jesus is coming into town. They're coming to celebrate the Passover. If you don't know anything about the Passover, you can go back and read about it in Exodus chapter 12. But ultimately, we see the Israelites are enslaved by Pharaoh, who's king of Egypt. And, and in their enslavement, God sends uh, 
people to set them free. And, and, and he comes and he brings about plagues. And the final plague was that he was going to kill all firstborn. But the Israelites would be saved because they were going to take a lamb and they would take the blood of that lamb and they would apply it to the doorpost of their home. And that blood on the doorpost would be a sign to the Lord that when he came, he would pass over that home and they would be saved by the blood. And so this is the very event that's happening in the last week of Jesus' life. If you weren't here last week, we talked about John chapter 1 through John chapter 12 is the book of signs. And then what we read on John chapter 13 to the end of the gospel of John is the book of glory. And we're going to see that that last from 13 to the end of the book is the final week of Jesus's life. So we're one week out from Jesus being crucified and risen. All right. That's where we're at in this, in this, uh, in this story right here. And we see they're coming to, to sacrifice a lamb. Why are they sacrificing lamb? They're sacrificing to be saved as a remembrance of what the Lord did of, of passing over their home and saving their first, firstborn. And then this is also a sense of going, we are to make sacrifices for, for our sins. And so everyone, we all need a sacrifice. We all need a savior. We all need something or someone to set us free. We're all looking for a king. And so all of these pilgrims, all the people, they hear that Jesus is coming into town and they go, man, this is the guy that rose Lazarus from the grave. This is the person who performed all these miracles we see in the early chapters of the gospel of John. These are gonna be people that traveled from Galilee who were a part of many of the early ministry life of Jesus. And they're traveling and they, they get word, he's coming into town. We are going to go out and celebrate him. Why are they celebrating him? What are they looking for? Well, all of us, just like these people, we all need an answer or a savior or a king to the brokenness that we face. We all do. In John chapter 12, verse 9 through 13, I'll read this again. When the large crowd of, of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So what'd they do? They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And so in this time frame, Israel was uh, just a place of unrest, right? Jews were, were longing for a messianic deliverer. They were looking for the one who was prophesied about in the Old Testament. They were looking for this one who would come and, and set them free and restore uh, the throne of David over all of Israel to be a king. And so they're looking for a savior. And here's what I would say to us, all of us in a very similar way, when we hear or experience that there is a savior, that there's an answer to our brokenness, we are going to go out and meet him. Now, for us, when we watch, you know, every movie that ever played, every great story that's been ever told, it's the story of a hero, someone who saves us from our brokenness, from our troubles, from our oppression. And we're looking for that same person. 
Someone who makes sense of the world. Someone who can speak to the problems we're experiencing. Someone who can bring hope in the midst of great pain. Someone who can bring answers. Someone who could be our Savior. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, we see a time where there was no king over Jerusalem. And it says uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 8 that they longed for a king. They wanted a king like other nations. Listen to this. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and that he might fight our battles. And the question is, is who is the person, the thing, the item, the hope that you put your trust in that fights your battles? We're all looking for a king. We're all longing and awaiting a king. We're looking for someone who can fight our battles, the battles that we face. And Jerry Bridges calls this our functional saviors. We all have a functional savior. We're all looking for a king. He says this, sometimes we look to other things to satisfy us and fulfill us, to save us. These functional saviors can be any object of dependence we embrace that isn't God. They become the source of our identity, our security, our significance, because we hold an idolatrous affection for them in our hearts They preoccupy our minds. They consume our time and resources. They make us feel good and somehow even make us feel righteous. Whether we realize it or not, they control us and we worship him. Now, the truth is, is we may not label our search and journey in life as looking for a king, but all of us are looking for something or someone to set us free. And the world is full of answers. The world's full of answers. If you've ever been scrolling on Instagram and you're like, oh, I do need that. And it's like, man, Instagram knows me better than I know myself. How did they know I needed that? Well, because, come on, guys. You've been looking at your Google search history. They know what you need. They know what you want. They know what satisfies. They know that will be your functional savior, the thing that brings hope and meaning and lasting significance, purpose, and Just answer, make all your wildest dreams come true, right? You're like, if I have that, that will truly satisfy. And we're all looking for that thing. And so in the same way, a crowd is gathered. They're going out to meet Jesus. And in the same way, we too are looking for an answer. Could Jesus be the hope? Could Jesus be the person who restores Israel? Could Jesus be the one who truly sets us free from Roman oppression? Can Jesus be the one who is is the one who's prophesied to come? And is he going to be this militant force that comes? Is, Is this the guy? They're anxious to see. Is Jesus going to be the answer to our biggest problem? But here's the question that I think we need to answer. What is our biggest problem? Because we all come to life with problems. We all come to functional saviors looking for them to solve something in our life that's broken. But what is the thing that's most broken? What is our biggest problem? 
I'll read on, John chapter 12, 12 through 16. It says, The next day the large crowd that come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees. They went out to him crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it's written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And here's what I would say, and I'm going to help illustrate it for us. The king we want is not the king we need. The king we want, the savior we want is not the savior we need. This is key. This is key. They believed what, and and a lot of people if I can kind of nerd out here for you, there's a couple different crowds. And a lot of times you've heard people preach this message about the triumphal entry and talk about how Christians are fickle. And, you know, on one day they're yelling, Hosanna, save us. And then the next day they're yelling, crucify, crucify him. And you're like, look, I mean, how, how fickle are we that one day we're talking about save us. And then the next day we're saying, yeah, crucify that guy. Now, the truth is, we are that fickle people. We, we are the people who say, save us. And then when he doesn't actually meet our expectations and he's not the king that we desire, that we actually are the people that want to crucify him a few days later. But I would tell you, and, and historians and scholars believe, if you'll do some research and you'll read, this is one of the few stories that is in all four gospel accounts is the triumphal entry, I would tell you that the crowds are different. The same crowd that yells Hosanna is not necessarily, I'm saying there may be some crossover. You know, Billy might've been there at the triumphal entry and putting palm branches. And then he kind of got caught up in the, the commotion of the crowd. Same way I think my grandma got caught up in being kissed by Willie Nelson. Like it just happens, right? Like everybody's like, crucify him. I'm like, yeah, crucify. You're, you're kind of yelling with the crowd. You kind of get caught up in that. So I think there definitely could be crossover, but I would tell you they're different people. And you're going to see that there's different reaction. The Jews here, the, the religious leaders are very much against what's happening. There is a commotion. There, there is a scene that's happening. They're laying down palm branches, which if you, if you ever visit Israel or you look at Israel's history, uh, the palm tree was kind of a national symbol. And that would be kind of seen as royalty. A lot of the first coins would have a stamp of a palm tree. Palm branches were put down in a way of honoring a king. But what's interesting is in this, they say, even the king of Israel, verse 13, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They believe the king that they're looking at, Jesus, that he's coming as a political force. Okay? Now, if, if I can just kind of simplify this, is they believe that he's coming and he's going to defeat Rome. Now, here's what I would tell you. I am thankful, and this, this needs to kind of motivate all of us and move us to a place of like, man, where, where am I doing something very similar? What if Jesus truly gave them what they wanted? What if Jesus came and says... So you want to defeat Rome? Let's defeat Rome. Great. But guess what? You're still going to die in your sins. Because I can can defeat Rome all day long. But he didn't come to defeat Rome. He came to defeat Satan. 
The king we want is not the king we need. And that's where we go. Maybe we look at this and we go, man, Rome is my biggest problem. I don't know what it is for you today, but you come and you go, man, this is my biggest problem. I would tell you, your biggest problem is the fact that we have to figure out what do we do with sin? How do we be reconciled to a holy God? How is man made right with God? And it's only by the blood of Jesus. It's only because a king came to lay down his life and to come in as a servant and to give his life sacrificially to defeat Satan, sin, and death that that we can be victorious. It's not because he comes to defeat Rome or defeat some political power. And I just wonder, like, what political agenda, what brokenness do we see that we're like, man, if he comes in, if he solves this, then this is going to be the Savior. This is going to be the one that I praise and give honor to. When in reality, he's come to do something far greater. He's come to defeat Satan, sin, and death, to defeat our biggest problem, which is the eternal, like the, the vast chasm that exists between his holiness and our sinfulness. He's come to to break down this dividing wall of hostility between us and God. That's our biggest problem. And so they're cheering and they're celebrating. They're like, he's going to be the king of Israel. He's going to be this political warrior that defeats Rome. And he's like, man, I'm not here to serve your purposes, but I am here to serve your biggest problem. I'm not coming to be your puppet. I'm coming to be your savior, your king. The king we want is not the king we need. So let me ask you, when we look back in this story, I go, man, aren't we glad that he fulfilled his purpose and not ours? Aren't we glad that he listened and was obedient to the father and, and, and followed the father unto the cross and didn't get caught up in the political upheaval of the time and try to serve the purposes of the people. He was faithful to the Father. John Stott says this. When Jesus is truly our Lord, okay, he's not our puppet. We're not controlling him with our purposes, our motivations. When he is Lord, he directs our lives and we gladly obey him. Indeed, we bring every part of our lives under his lordship. Our home, our family, our sexuality, our marriage, our job, our unemployment, our money, our possessions, our ambitions, our recreations, We come to him. He is our king and we rightfully submit to him. He's not out to serve our purposes. Again, that's not a king, that's a puppet. He's king. And so we see that our role and our responsibility in this is to serve him, not to serve us. Now, he is kind and loving and gracious that he does go to the cross, and in doing so, he serves us. But I ask you this question this morning. You ever heard of Palm Monday? Palm Monday? Anybody? You heard of Palm Sunday? You heard of Palm Sunday? Palm Monday, okay? A lot of us love Palm Monday more than we love Palm Sunday, 
And here's what I mean by this. Palm Monday story, it goes like this. The donkey awakened on Monday morning, his mind still savoring the afterglow of the most exciting day of his life. What was that? The day before when he brought Jesus into the city, right? So his mind is still savoring the afterglow of the most exciting day of his life. Never before had he felt such a rush of pleasure and pride. He walked into town. He found a group of people by the well. And he goes, I'm going to go and show myself to them, he thought. But they didn't notice him. They went on drawing their water and paid him no mind. Throw your garments down, the donkey said. Don't you know who I am? They just looked at him in amazement. Someone slapped him across the tail and ordered him to move. Miserable heathens, he muttered to himself. I'll just go to the market where the good people are. They will remember me. But the same thing happened. No one paid any attention to the donkey as he strutted down the main street in front of the marketplace. And marketplace. The palm branches. Where are the palm branches, the donkey asked. Yesterday you threw palm branches. And hurt and confused, the donkey returned home to his mother. And she said, foolish child, didn't you realize that without him, you're just an ordinary donkey? And it's, we think about this story and we, we wonder, it's like, man, the donkey, we can get so caught up that we're the donkey that's carrying Jesus in. And we're like, look at all these people here to praise me to worship me, to honor me, to put down palm branches. They're, they're yelling, Hosanna. All this is for me. When in reality, all of that is meant to be for Jesus. That he's not out to serve our purposes. We're the donkey in this story, right? We're, we're, he's not out to serve our purposes. We are here to serve him. He's king. Sinclair Ferguson says, Christian contentment is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition than to belong to the Lord and to be totally at his disposal. I love this picture of this donkey. If you read the other gospel accounts, he basically says, go up and and tell somebody, hey, I need this donkey. The Lord needs it. And this donkey then comes and carries him into town. And we're like, man, just to be used in a way, it's like, I just want to be the donkey that gets to carry Jesus. That I just want to, I want to be the person who gets to, to serve the king. Not just the king of Israel, the king of the world. And Christian contentment, it means that we're moved to a place of being satisfied that we just get to serve the king. That we are totally at his disposal in the place that he appoints and the time that he chooses with the provision he is pleased to make. Man, that, there's gift in that. There's gold in that. So, interesting enough, where do we go from here? Well, I find it fascinating that when you read about this story in the other gospel accounts, and I'd encourage you to do so, maybe this week, take some time, find the triumphal entry in, in all the gospels and read through it because the, the unique uh, aspects of each story that each author brings to the story is fascinating. And in Mark chapter 11, I believe it's verse 11, it says that when Jesus enters into the city, Mark 11, he entered Jerusalem. He enters through the east gate and he went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, it was already late. So he went out to Bethany with the 12. He returned from where he came from. Seems kind of anticlimactic. 
Do you read that and you're like, what in the world? What is the significance of this event? Jesus goes, finds a donkey, gets on this donkey. They praise him as some, the king they want, not the king they need. They thought he was some political, but he's coming to save the world from their sins. He comes into the city. Now, some of the accounts say that he went in, he flipped over tables. Mark's 11, Mark 11 walks in. He, it's late. He kind of looks around. Oh, I guess it's time to go to bed. He heads back to Bethany. And we're like, what is the purpose? What's the significance of this, of this event? And here's what I would tell you. This single event marks, proves, prophesies the fact that Jesus is truly king. Jesus is truly king. Now, let me help you. Let me help illustrate that. What Jesus does is he mounts a donkey. He comes in. He's only about two miles out from Jerusalem. He comes in. This is the only account where we read or see or hear about Jesus riding a donkey, not walking. But here he comes. He rides a donkey into town. He gets into town. It's late. He returns to Bethany. What's going on? Well, we need to go to a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 and 10. When we read Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 and 10, it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so what we read here and what John's gospel alludes to in verse 15, because we see him quote Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And it says right after this in verse 16 that his disciples did not understand these things. Now, why is that significant? In verse 16, his disciples don't recognize. His disciples in that moment are not going, oh, he's riding a donkey. Don't you remember the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9? They weren't having this conversation, okay? So it wasn't until Jesus was glorified when Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father in heaven after he's buried, after, after he's crucified, after he rises from the grave and he ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven that they go, oh my gosh, we missed it. So I'm going, if the disciples missed it, then probably the people putting down the palm branches miss it, which is why they're not worshiping him as king, as savior. They're worshiping him as the king they want, not the king they need. But here they are in Zechariah chapter 9. We were given this prophecy and Jesus is going to fulfill this prophecy right here in John chapter 12. He's going to get on a donkey. He's going to come into town, but he's not going to come as other warriors or kings would come into town. He's going to come in humility. Now, John's gospel leaves that out in verse 15. When you read verse 15 of John chapter 12, we don't get this word humility in here. But when we read in, in Zechariah chapter 9, 9, it says he's coming humble and mounted on a donkey. Jesus is coming in humility. Jesus is coming 
And if, if you keep reading in Zechariah chapter 9, he tells us a couple things that Jesus coming as prophecy, Jesus coming on this donkey, coming in humility, what's it going to accomplish? It's going to end all war. Jesus coming and being this king is going to lead to a proclamation of peace to the nations. This coming of king is going to be associated with the blood of God's covenant that spells release for the prisoners. You can read about that in 9 through 11. It's going to set prisoners free. And this is all testifying to what Jesus is going to come and do. Now, here's what I find fascinating, okay? And this is key to understanding this event and why this event is significant. This isn't the first time that someone rode a donkey into town, okay? This isn't the first time somebody rode a donkey into town from the Gihon Spring over the Kidron Valley in through the east gate of the temple. It's not. The very first time it happened was in 1 Kings chapter 1. If you got your Bible, you can flip over there. 1 Kings chapter 1. It tells of a story of someone coming on a donkey. Now, what's interesting is we read the very first verse. It says, Now King David was old, 1 Kings 1.1. Now King David was old and advanced in years. And although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. And it goes on, and ultimately they're going, who's going to be king after David? Here he is, old age. He, you know, he, he's lost all warmth in his life. He's an old man. And it's, who's going to follow him and be king? In verse 5, it says, Now Adonijah, the son of Haggath, exalted himself, saying, I'll be king. I'm going to be king. And he prepared for himself. What did he prepare? Chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Now, that's an entourage. That's a king you want to follow, right? A king who comes on a chariot with horses. And, and he says, I'm going to get 50 people to run before me to announce my coming. And so he sets up this, this picture. And so we, we have this one son of King David that's going to be like, I'm, I'm going to be king. I'm going to take this kingdom. Now, what's interesting is Nathan and Bathsheba come to King David on his deathbed here and basically say, hey, Adonijah is coming. He's, he's trying to set up a kingdom. He's trying to be king. And it's like you've already offered that to your son Solomon. Solomon is meant to be king. And he's like, you're right. You're right. That's correct. Solomon is meant to be king. So what does he tell him to do? It seems crazy. The king said to them in verse 33, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. 1 Kings 1, 38. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherites and the Pelethites went down and had his Solomon ride King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. Now here's the deal. What's the significance here? Well, this would prove and this, this would show and this would illustrate by putting him on King David's mule and parading him into Jerusalem from the Gihon Spring across the Kidron Valley onto the temple floor that it would prove that any other king that would set themselves up as a phony king. 
Now, what does this have to do with Jesus? Well, when we get to this time and we see everything that's kind of taking shape, Jesus is coming into town. He doesn't get a chariot. He doesn't get this entourage. But he comes in humility. He comes on a mule. And he comes into the city as the true king. Everything that Solomon as a broken king would try to create, would try to build, Jesus does in complete perfection. Jesus comes saying, I am the true king. And all other kings that come before me or ride before me are phony. He's the king. He's the king. And they mocked him. They placed a crown of thorns on his head. We think about the significance of that. And we, we go, you know, man, here he is. The king would take on a mocking crown of thorns. Well, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 18, it says that one of the curses that Adam was going to take is that the ground would produce thorns and thistles. And here's Jesus taking on the curse. He's taking on the curse. And Jesus doesn't receive the procession that he deserves. To be quite honest, when I think about Jesus coming into the city of the king of the world, he deserves all the praise, all the worship, all the entourage, all the chariots, all the horses. And he receives none of that. But one day, in Revelation chapter 7 verse 9, it says... After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. They're going to declare that he's Jesus. He's the king. Do you know him to be king? Have you submitted your life to his lordship? He is proven through his coming, through his triumphal entry, that he is the one true king that is to be worshiped. He is not coming to serve our purpose, but he is coming to serve our greatest problem, to set us free, not from political tyrants, but from Satan's sin and death. John Stott says, once we are clear that God is king, then we long to see him crowned with glory and honor. And accorded his true place, which is the supreme place. We become ambitious for the spread of his kingdom and righteousness everywhere. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up forward. I'm going to pray for us this morning and then give us some time to respond. Father, we thank you for this picture that Jesus comes. That he is truly king. Lord, we want to see him crowned with all glory and honor, the, the true place that he deserves. And Lord, when we see that, would you move us with holy ambition to spread his kingdom and righteousness everywhere? Lord, we want to worship the true king. Father, move our hearts to see you for who you truly are. That maybe... We, like the disciples, don't recognize it in the moment. We didn't recognize what you, you truly came to do. But even right here today, 
our minds are open, our hearts are open, we see Jesus for who he truly is and go, he is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And that one day every knee will bow, every mouth, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So Father, we honor you in that today. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.